0: Welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William Mary Law School. I'm your host, Taylor Lane, a research fellow with CLCT. Before we begin, I want to ask our listeners to please excuse any sound quality issues we may have. We are taking the current COVID-19 crisis very seriously, so we are recording this episode via Zoom. Now, today's program is one in a series of episodes where we will grapple with the way smart cities and smart city technology interact with the law. Today, we begin what will be a two-part discussion about how smart cities generate challenges within the realm of civil rights law and policy. In the first part, today's podcast, we will focus on legal and policy concerns at the intersection of smart cities and the intellectually and developmentally disabled community. In our second podcast we will address technologies that will likely proliferate in smart city contexts in particular facial recognition technology and other predictive policing parole and sentencing applications and how they will impact minority rights and immigration in such cities joining us today are Catherine sorrell and alex pratt who are also research fellows with clct welcome ladies hey hey Now, I'm aware, Catherine, that you have some previous experience with research on cities and civil rights, and it might be helpful for our audience to know more about these experiences. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your background with us?
1: Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm particularly interested in cities because in my pre-law school life, I earned a Master's in Urbanization and Development um, at the London School of Economics. And that's quite a mouthful, but it basically means that I studied cities, how they develop, and all of the institutional, political, economic, and social factors that shape who cities include and exclude. So part of that conversation always involves technology. And of course, that conversation involves policy and legal issues as well. So I've definitely spent a few years thinking about some of the issues that we'll discuss today today. But I also consider myself a novice on this topic, partly because cities are always changing and the relevant technology has certainly accelerated in new directions, even in the last
0: few years. Well, excellent. It'll be nice to delve into things that overall are in your wheelhouse. Now, for our listeners, to preface our discussion, I would like to add two quick disclaimers. First, during this conversation, we will refer to various disadvantaged and minority groups. Any reference or mistaken phrasing we may make is not intended to cause any offense to any member of any group. Second, our conversation today requires a longer conversation about the history and background um, of the intellectual and developmentally disabled community, or what we will call the IDD community. This background will comprise the first half of today's podcast, but it will give us a great foundation for the second half of the conversation, where we will shift to discussing smart cities and how they might impact the IDD community. And with that, let's pivot and delve into our topic today. Of course, a good deal of our law touches on civil rights in the IDD community, but I think it's fair to say that much of our discussion will also incorporate matters of policy.
2: Definitely. And I think we should clarify for our listeners that when we refer to policy in this discussion today, we're referring to it as it impacts legal decision making. In that sense, policy encompasses a bit more than, say, the policies and procedures that one
0: follows at work. And because our discussion will be so policy heavy, can we get a sense of why cities are so important to civil rights? In other words, what what is it that makes cities unique settings for the development of civil rights? Yeah, that's a
1: great question, and it's one worth addressing more broadly because this entire podcast series is all about taking a close look at cities. One thing that makes cities unique, of course, is their sheer density or the concentration of people and resources that we find in them. So the amount of people interacting on a daily basis and in a variety of settings is one factor playing into this importance. Another is what we might call a concentration of institutions. Cities are, homes to, are home to lots of businesses, hospitals, news organizations, government offices, law enforcement units, prisons, schools, community centers, political coalitions, transportation networks and all sorts of other large and small institutions. Still another reason that cities are are really unique is that they're often the first places that new technologies or types of infrastructure are implemented and tested. The concentration of diverse populations, whether different racial or ethnic
2: groups, uh, social groups, religious groups, political parties, or even cultural and linguistic groups can mean all sorts of things for civil rights one of the most important things this concentration does is highlight disparities between groups. Sometimes bringing these disparities to light encourages people to break them down through political action or mobilization or move cities to provide more opportunities to level the playing field through economic mobility, education, or assimilation. We see this type of thing occur when, say, a city's homeless population is highly visible to its citizens. Again, partially because cities create proximity. It's hard to ignore folks that you see sleeping in public places like subways and street corners every day. Urban dwellers may respond by pressing their local government to create more
1: affordable housing or shelters. Other times we see the barriers that groups face in cities in much greater relief. For example, we see patterns of segregation or the ways that an education system fails certain groups of students like those in special education classes Or to go back to um, Alex's homeless population example, we may see that the patterns of housing inequality continue. Maybe it's because city officials or even citizens, even though they see homeless folks on a day-to-day basis, they might choose to ignore the problem. We may also see that a municipal government isolates or forces its homeless population to occupy certain parts of the city so that they become less visible to everyday urban dwellers. We often hear about things like this happening when a city is, quote unquote, cleaning up a neighborhood or when they're preparing to host a big event like the Olympics or the Super Bowl. In those cases, they often deliberately remove the homeless population from the more visible or central parts of the city.
0: So you're saying that cities can help in both breaking down and perpetuating these disparities.
1: Yes, that's correct. It's definitely a paradox. Just as cities can highlight the differences between groups They can also create opportunities for connections or networks to build across groups. Solidarity and unlikely alliances can form in cities, again, because of the close proximity of diverse populations who might find common cause with one another. We saw this, for example, with groups who come together to protest
2: police brutality. We may think of that issue in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement, But coalitions have formed across African-American, Latino, and other communities that are impacted disproportionately by police brutality because they have found common cause and built networks of solidarity. Once these networks form, they may gain ground to bring attention to an issue. We often see civil rights movements form, emerge, and gain momentum in cities for exactly this reason. Cities also provide greater visibility for these movements. There are newspapers to cover civil rights movements, for example,
1: or there are other public platforms that reach an even greater audience in cities. Another way of summarizing these points is to say that cities are settings where we see patterns of inclusion and exclusion. People often come to cities for opportunity, and cities may provide pathways for inclusion and visibility for certain groups. At the same time, the paradox of cities is that these same groups may encounter enormous barriers that threaten to exclude them from the amenities and benefits that the city has to offer. These barriers can include anything from covert discriminatory attitudes to outright and outspoken racism, and they can manifest in things like policies that make it difficult to access jobs, healthcare, or affordable housing. In other words, there are all sorts of overlapping systems in cities and they can operate almost like levers that either open up the city and make it more accessible for various groups, or they can close the city off and exclude those groups.
0: I think that's a really good way of putting it. Now, are there any reasons to pay attention to policies that impact civil rights at the municipal or the city level, as opposed to state or national level policies?
1: Absolutely. We often associate civil rights with action at the national level because national policies or issues seem to get the most coverage, and we often think of broad changes happening at the national level. Um, But as I noted before, concerns at the municipal level often provide the concrete starting point for these types of movements. Local city histories can be firmly captured in stories and give a movement of a specific geography, population, and problem to coalesce around. Uh, We saw that much of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, for example, gained traction around local boycotts that called for change at the municipal level. Certainly these movements tied to calls for change to national policies, but it was frequently easier to start with what was happening in their neighborhoods or their towns and specifically address how their local sheriffs or mayors, for example, were responding. So those sorts of local movements and concerns then often build the scaffold to mobilize for state level and national reforms.
2: Also, we see that cities can pave the way for or incubate policies adopted later on a wider scale. In some sense, cities have more flexibility to develop approaches and to even uh, veer in different directions with these approaches than, say, the states or the national government. Sometimes that means they can even resist national or state-level legislation. These circumstances aren't just important when they develop successful initiatives. Even failed experiments in cities can be important for influencing state national laws. For example, we've seen lots of conversation around Bloomberg's implementation of the stop-and-frisk policy in New York. However you feel about it, it was a local law enforcement measure developed and tested in New York City that generated so much protest and national tension that it wound up before the Supreme Court. This city-level practice ended up shaping national law when it was deemed unconstitutional, In this way, cities can act like petri dishes where more equitable policies can develop and discriminatory policies can be challenged.
0: Wow, I really didn't think that what cities did had so much sway in the national legal arena. Now let's turn specifically to the IDD community. Obviously, civil rights issues impact many different groups of people, but trying to talk about them all would take at the very least several hours.
2: But Taylor, it's quarantine. What
0: else are we doing? Don't you have to study for the bar exam?
2: oh right
0: yeah (laughs) so we have decided to focus this episode on the idd community and how the development of smart cities might impact their civil rights to begin with some background some of our listeners may know about certain disabilities and related legal issues but they may not have previously heard this particular term idd community can you tell us a little bit more about this community
1: of course um and we'll begin with some definitions I should start by saying, um, before I even dive into the definitions, that the term IDD community is very broad. It covers um, a wide range um, and a huge group of people with very different conditions. So it's difficult to contain everyone that identifies as being part of the IDD community um, into one definition. Uh, So that said, these definitions will be very long, um, but we're going to rely on the experts at the National Institutes of Health. Um, so to dive in, uh, the National Institutes of Health defines intellectual disabilities as, quote, a group of disorders characterized by a limited mental capacity and difficulty with adaptive behaviors such as managing money, schedules and routines, or social interactions. Intellectual disability originates before the age of 18 and may result from physical causes such as autism or cerebral palsy, or from non-physical causes such as lack of stimulation and adult responsiveness. Uh, The NIH goes on to define developmental disability as, quote, a severe long-term disability that can affect cognitive ability, physical functioning, or both. These disabilities appear before age 22 and are likely to be lifelong. The term developmental disability encompasses intellectual disability, but also includes physical disabilities. Some developmental disabilities may be solely physical, such as blindness from birth. Others involve both physical and intellectual disabilities stemming from genetic or other causes, such as Down syndrome and fetal alcohol syndrome. So obviously, the IDD category is quite large and touches upon a wide variety of legal concerns. It's worth noting also that some of the leading activist groups, both nationally and globally, have mobilized a coalition of people who identify as part of the IDD community, this broad umbrella term that we're using, and they've used the language of civil rights and human rights to talk about their efforts to achieve broader social inclusion. It's also worth noting that some disabilities are visible. We see someone who uses a wheelchair as an accommodation, for for example. Other disabilities, however, are not visible. Someone would have to let an employer know, for example, that they need an accommodation for dyslexia, uh, which is an intellectual disability, as an employer would not otherwise know or be able to um, see with their naked eye that someone would have dyslexia.
2: Now, for a legal and statutory definition, we can look to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is also known as the ADA. The ADA defines disability as one of three things. A a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities of such individual, B, a record of such impairment, or C, being regarded as having such an impairment. The act then goes on to specify that the major life activities include but are not limited to caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, seeing, hearing, eating, sleeping, walking standing lifting bending speaking breathing learning reading concentrating
1: thinking communicating and working
0: that literally encompasses so many different things
1: exactly and that is exactly why legal issues relating to the idd community are so important I will point out too that the ADA definition establishes the baseline for employers to evaluate accommodations
0: for the IDD community. So what else should we know about the IDD community?
1: Well, for one thing, it's enormous. The United Nations has actually said that the IDD community is the largest minority community with the greatest number of people worldwide. Wait, really? Yes. Some estimates say more than one billion people fall within the ranks of the IDD community globally and that the community will make up about 15% of total global urban populations by the year 2050. So they have an enormous presence in cities and they often rely on city infrastructure to gain access to jobs, education, transportation, and housing. Finally, because the IDD community is so large, it is also highly intersectional. In other words, folks in the IDD community are often also members of other minority groups including racial or ethnic minorities, religious minorities, and gender minorities. So when it comes to civil rights, they might understand not only the particular challenges associated with being part of the IDD community, but also the challenges of navigating the world with a disability and as a woman of color, for example.
2: Actually, I read a story recently about a young man from Mexico who was born blind and going through the CISM process here in the United States. When he was asked to read a sentence in English, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services agent couldn't provide him with the required reading in Braille, so he couldn't pass the reading portion of the naturalization exam. Months later, after the man told his story to the Washington Post, the Immigration Services finally began offering their tests in Braille.
1: Yeah, that's a perfect example of the way the IDD community intersects with other minority communities. It's pretty incredible that one person's story published at the right time can lead to such a huge change.
0: Absolutely. Now, Alex, can you tell us a little bit more about how the IDD community and the law have interacted in the past, at least in the U.S.? Are there any special legal protections for the IDD community?
2: Sure. Uh, In equal protection cases under the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court has recognized what are known as suspect classes. A suspect class is one that has historically been subject to discrimination. For a person to fall into such a class, the Supreme Court tries to determine whether the class of people or community that they're a part of is what is known as a discrete and insular minority. These are groups that have a recognized history of being discriminated against or disadvantaged and have historically lacked effective representation in the political process. The court also examines whether the class or community is composed of people with an inherent trait. Uh, That's one that is immutable and unchanging, like race, or if they have a trait that is highly visible.
0: And the IDD community doesn't fall within one of these classes?
2: No. In fact, under the Supreme Court's 1985 ruling in City of Claiborne, Texas versus Claiborne Living Center, IDD persons were not even considered what's known as a quasi-suspect class, which would have gotten them just a bit more judicial scrutiny of any laws that impacted their rights. Instead, they got nothing. By denying them this classification, the court was effectively saying, hey, the Constitution doesn't say you need extra protection, so we can't give you any. However, I'm, I'm not saying that the court was actively trying to harm the IDG community. Often the court bases its decisions on the fact that it thinks that certain societal problems are for legislatures, not for the judiciary to decide. So in 1990, shortly after Claiborne, and perhaps by Supreme Court design, Congress enacted the ADA, which established IDD persons as a protected
0: class by statute. That's quite a radical change within a short span of time, which makes me think that there is more to the history of the IDD community, at least in the U.S., than meets the eye. Can you give us some of the highlights of that history, particularly as they pertain to the civil rights movement?
1: Yeah, you're right about there being a lot more to it, Taylor. And we should note that this history is much longer and more complicated than we can do justice to in a single podcast or even a single uh, series of podcasts. Um, But if you go back about 60 years, long before the ADA became law in the 1990s, um, the IDD community was largely confined to a status of social political and economic invisibility. If persons with intellectual or developmental disabilities did not live with their families, um, where they would usually rely on them as caretakers for the duration of their lives, the government largely hid them away through what we would call warehousing. They were placed, in other words, in public institutions where they enjoyed very few freedoms and rights at best. They were employed, they worked in very low-skilled jobs for almost no pay, and they were vulnerable to abuse and severe isolation, often without access to education, community ties, or basic services. That sounds horrible,
0: but the ADA eventually fixed this problem, right?
1: The ADA certainly placed the rights of IDD individuals on the legislative map, but this was really only a basic acknowledgement that rights for those with disabilities are human rights, that those in the IDD community have a right to the same level of access to housing, education, employment, and transportation as everyone else. It's not just a nice thing, in other words, to build a wheelchair ramp. The ADA recognized that this is actually an issue of civil rights and that creating access to a building, for example, creating that access for all is often the least that we can ask of our society.
0: So what development has occurred in this area since the ADA? Have we tried to jump further off of that floor that the ADA established?
2: Well, It's important, again, to emphasize that the ADA established a framework for progress. Under the ADA, those with disabilities fall within a protected class, even if they had previously not been viewed as such under the Equal Protection Clause. Now, you have remedies available to persons in the IDD community who face discrimination or who don't receive accommodations from employers or public institutions. While it certainly operates as a floor rather than a ceiling, The ADA at least creates some measure of accountability for institutions and forces them to pay attention to the rights of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's also important to note the 1999 Supreme Court decision Olmstead versus LC that followed on the heels of the ADA. It stated that states had to, quote, eliminate unnecessary segregation of people with disabilities and to ensure that they receive services in the most integrated setting appropriate to their needs, end quote.
1: Alex, that's a great segue into talking about a paradigm shift in the IDD movement that's occurred in the last 20 to 30 years. So as Alex mentioned, the ADA created a framework for accountability, and you see a lot of improvements in accessibility in the areas of transportation, housing, education and employment. Uh, for one thing, we certainly moved away from thinking it's okay to, to warehouse the IDD community and institutions. For another, there's been a dramatic increase in life expectancy in the latter half of the 20th century um, in, for those in the IDD community. And this isn't just because of science and technology getting better, but it's also partly because the IDD community has greater access to basic healthcare and medical professionals, Um, who are now much more aware of how they should care for this community.
0: That sounds like good progress to me.
1: In a sense, yes, absolutely. Um, But these efforts followed what I would call the dual-track model, in that they treat those in the IDD community differently from everyone else. For example, they created things like, quote-unquote, special needs programs in the education system. And while the special needs programs certainly created educational opportunities for the IDD community, They are also separate educational tracks that often effectively segregate those in the IDD community from their peers. As another example, large corporations like Walgreens have established employment programs um, that employ large number of folks from the IDD community, which is wonderful, Um, but it also, these types of programs also afford them little choice in their job duties or opportunity for advancement. They relegate employees from the IDD community to low-skilled jobs, or they create one-size-fits-all positions, lumping everyone with a disability into the same group and restricting them professionally. Housing models have followed the same pattern. So again, while we've moved away from warehousing, today you still see isolated IDD community housing. IDD persons may be able to live independently and with full accommodations in their own housing areas, but they are often built um, where they're still segregated from the rest of the the community in the city.
0: So are we still seeing this dual track mindset today?
1: Yes, certainly we see it today, but I would also say that we're in the middle of another paradigm shift, one that now centers around integration of the IDD community into the rest of society. So inclusion has now become a priority, a major priority for the IDD community. And one of the major activist organizations, the ARC, As the ARC, probably the leading national activist organization for the IDD community puts it, they say, quote, everyone deserves to be included and live a full life in their community, accessing the same public spaces, housing opportunities, education, and work as anyone else.
2: It's not enough, in other words, for a store to attach a ramp to their building. That's not full access. Full access allows those in the IDD community to live in any neighborhood they choose, to pursue employment in any sector or position for which they have skills to offer, and to be afforded any other opportunity as an able-bodied or neurotypical person
1: might have. This shift was actually evident in the Supreme Court's rationale in Olmstead. Now that we've reached this point, I think technology can play a big role in the future progress of this movement. You can see this shift as moving the IDD community from a position of relative invisibility, where at best they might be segregated from the rest of society, to one in which they are visible and able to participate as vital integral members of the larger community. This movement towards inclusion obviously encompasses multiple sectors and institutions within a city. It impacts housing, transportation, employment, education, healthcare, and more. It also impacts more than just the IDD community. It involves the whole community in a city. It requires changing broader societal perspectives so that it's no longer normal not to live, work, study, or ride the bus or the subway alongside individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. In other words, they should be integrated across all of our city's systems, and we should be interacting with them and seeing them all the time if we're members of the mainstream community. To bring us back to smart cities, smart technology could
2: really accelerate and improve this level of inclusion. But if we're not careful, we could end up designing smart cities that further exclude those in the
0: IDD community. So what might more inclusive smart city technology look like?
1: Let me start by saying that much of the smart technology that benefits the IDD community benefits all of us. I've seen reports, for example, that since the COVID-19 quarantine began, Many of the tools that we've taken advantage of in order to work from home online have been accommodations that some IDD activists have actually requested for IDD persons to perform their work better long before this quarantine began.
0: Like what in particular?
1: So, for example, tools like video conferencing programs are ideal for those with mobility concerns. And considering we're all video conferencing
2: every day, all day right now, it seems like a really super simple solution.
1: Exactly. There are plenty of things that we see and use all the time without thinking about them as quote-unquote accommodations. Oftentimes, the broader community has to need these things before they can be normalized and seen as tools to improve IDD community access. Many things we can incorporate into smart city infrastructure to support the IDD community will also benefit the whole population. That said, some technology is also being adapted specifically to address the particular needs of persons with disabilities. Smart city solutions for the IDD community include creating apps that map accessible routes along city sidewalks and public changing rooms that feature adjustable sinks and toilets or accommodate caregivers in certain ways who are assisting adults with disabilities. For the visually impaired, audio cues can help them navigate escalators, automatic doors, or gaps between a train and its platform. Voice adaptation technology for those who require speech accommodations and instant translation technology that translates audio into written text. Those are also both helpful accommodations that we're seeing. Then of course, smart homes
2: can be such a tremendous asset for those with disabilities. Automating certain functions such as taking out the trash or creating adaptations in appliances to make them responsive to voice commands, those can mean the difference between independence and dependence
1: for some individuals. These are all granular examples that we're giving, but at a very general level, they amount to what we would call accommodation by design. I like this term because it's a reminder that these accommodations have to be incorporated into infrastructure during the design process. They can't be an afterthought or an added benefit. The designers of these technologies, including smart city technologies, have to actually think about designing for everyone or designing explicitly for those in the IDD community as well as everyone else. Otherwise, as we've seen repeatedly, the default user in the designer's mind will be a white, able-bodied male. That traditional default doesn't just limit users, it also closes off possible avenues of technological development. Frankly, there are probably
2: many ways to apply smart technology to accommodate the IDD community that we haven't
1: even imagined yet. Absolutely. Now we're focusing a lot on accommodations for physical disabilities in this conversation, So I also want to make sure to note that there are many similar possibilities for disabilities that do not manifest themselves as visible impairments. As we discussed before, many intellectual or developmental disabilities are less apparent or visible. So this gives us all the more reason to embrace the design for all or accommodation by design paradigm.
0: That makes a ton of sense. Now. I would assume that the development and integration of this technology would require collaboration between government and private entities in previous episodes we've talked about how this could create real problems for privacy do public private partnerships in this area invoke the same privacy concerns that we've discussed in previous episodes or are they somehow different
2: because these public private partnerships would deal heavily with biological and health related data There is a world of difference between partnerships in this area and the government's collaboration with private tech companies in other contexts. To develop smart wheelchairs, smart medical devices, smart homes, and other similar devices, private tech companies will need access to vast amounts of data. And the data that they will have to use is personalized data associated with individual biological and health deficiencies. This prospect makes the privacy concerns that we already have with big data and smart cities even scarier, but it seems like any shift towards the inclusion model in smart cities will necessarily require this kind of technologies. So it may be that to progress, we will just have to find a way to mitigate these privacy threats as much as possible.
0: Those, in my opinion, sound like some pretty serious risks. Are there any other benefits that communities should consider when assessing the relative magnitude of those privacy concerns?
1: Well, a major, if not so obvious, consequence of developing this kind of smart city technology actually helps out caretakers and even healthcare providers. So empowering those in the IDD community gives them more independence, which can in turn reduce financial time and other burdens on their parents, friends, siblings, and other caretakers. It can also provide these caretakers with more information to perform their roles more effectively. So despite all the data privacy concerns that Alex talked about before, this technology does convey a ton of data that could help caretakers and healthcare providers track indicators of well-being and health. And it may provide these providers with further security and peace of mind by enabling individuals with disabilities to um, you know, keep in touch via an app, for example, rather than rely
0: on the caretaker's physical presence in case something happens. So this kind of technology would improve the quality of life not only of IDD persons, but also of those around them. That's definitely something to look forward to. What other benefits might we see?
1: The other potential benefit, and again, I emphasize potential because this is something that has to be designed into the system. But the benefit, one benefit is that the burden of ensuring compliance with the ADA could shift to the technology.
0: I'm not sure I follow who or what carries the burden now to ensure that compliance.
1: So by and large, the onus currently is on the person with a disability to make sure that entities are in compliance with the ADA. The ADA does a lot of good things for the IDD community, but if say an employer is not complying with the terms of the statute, they're not giving a person with a disability accommodations, for example, the burden falls to the person with a disability to report the noncompliance. So for example, suppose someone in a wheelchair needs to enter a building for a job interview but finds that there's no ramp or that the ramp is blocked or that there are cracks in the concrete that make it dangerous to use. Who's going to say something? Usually it's the person in the wheelchair. Meanwhile, they are also still trying to make it to the job interview. So we could imagine that tech interventions could help out in this sort sort of situation. An app, for example, could allow people to alert city officials to problem areas like this issue with the ramp. These kinds of things exist already, but if they were used by the whole community, we wouldn't have to rely exclusively on the person with a disability or their caretaker to speak out when something like this happens. This would shift the burden of ensuring ADA compliance from, ideally, again, from the person with a disability to technology. And accordingly, it would free up, hopefully, time and energy to truly engage with the surrounding community by pursuing jobs, studying for a degree, spending time making art, or raising children, for example.
2: It's been 30 years since the ADA passed and we still see buildings that just barely meet ADA standards. If you think about the subway system in New York and all of its various issues, you can easily see how current civic infrastructure fails those with disabilities. Smart cities, by integrating services for citizens across systems, could anticipate needs based on lived behavior and make the infrastructure of a city more adaptive to the needs of those in the IDD community. But again, and not to beat the same drum over and over again, it has to be designed into the system.
0: Are there any additional drawbacks or concerns, aside from the privacy concerns that Alex mentioned earlier, to advancing in this way?
1: Well, many of the concerns we would have about smart cities and those in the IDD community are generalizable, meaning they're just as applicable to those outside the IDD community as they are to those within it. There is, of course, a concern about privacy, as you mentioned, which only grows with increasing dependence on this technology for things like, say, voice adaptation or tracking health data. And speaking of health data, that brings up an interesting point. Currently, we're seeing
2: big tech companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, develop initiatives to try and track the spread of COVID-19. For instance, there's this uh, multi-company contact tracing app in the works, but these initiatives depend on users providing these companies with health data, like information regarding whether they've had the virus or any symptoms. Given that we have to ask, do we want to give them this information? Even though these companies say that the data will be anonymized. We all know that data is never truly anonymized, and this is especially true for data needed for contact tracing, because that's going to include location and health data. Contact tracing doesn't work unless it's personalized in some way. Concerns about health data and privacy like this are already bad for the able-bodied and neurotypical community, but they're exacerbated when it comes to the IDD community. IDD persons may have a very particular set of health concerns, even if their health data is quote unquote anonymized data related to those very specific health concerns is much easier to correlate with the individuals. And remember, these are private companies storing this health information, even though they're providing a public good by responding to a public health crisis.
1: This personal health data is then forever owned and controlled by corporate entities. And issues about dependence on the technology are not just about privacy. The potential for smart technology and providing those in the IDD community with more access and independence results in a major question. If their access and independence relies on technology, then what happens when there are problems or breakdowns in the system? What if a hack shuts down all access to a subway line or the bus, for example? Again, this is something that could impact everyone, but for individuals in the IDD community, the consequences of such an issue might be much more severe. Technological problems like this could shut down their lifelines. As another example, if things start malfunctioning in a smart home, which might otherwise be a a safe place for someone with a disability to live by themselves, it could cut off access to lines of communication, security devices, or other accommodations. So when those basic necessities depend entirely on an integrated system functioning properly, we should start to wonder what happens when there are even small glitches in the system. But the thing I worry about much more than any of this is the point that we keep coming back to and reiterating throughout this episode. If smart cities are not designed for everyone, including those in the IDD community, this technology may just exacerbate existing barriers to access. So what we're currently seeing is smart technology that's merely layered onto existing infrastructure. And there may be a cool new app to track when the next subway train arrives, for example, but that may not help if this app is just operating layered on top of the existing problems, like an elevator that's old and doesn't go down to the platform where the train actually comes. Um, if If the elevator doesn't work, a person in a wheelchair will not be able to make it to the platform even by the time they're supposed to get on the train. So when we design these technologies, we want to ensure that we're not just putting a fresh coat of paint on a door that's falling off the hinges, so to speak.
0: Now, you also mentioned the possibility of actively excluding others through this kind of technology. How might this happen?
1: Well, uh, some design features could actively, as you put it, um, though perhaps unintentionally, exclude members of the IDD community from accessing certain amenities. Um, so we might see access to a subway or bus, a building, or even a home um, that's controlled uh, through voice or facial recognition technology. And voice recognition you know, might be a perfectly fine uh, solution um, or feature for an able-bodied individual, Um, It might also even be a great accommodation for some in the IDD community, Um, but for those with, say, a disability that impacts their speech in some way, using voice recognition to enter and exit a building could actually obstruct their access to that building. Facial recognition, which I mentioned, has posed similar issues from a design perspective. Study after study has shown that this kind of technology has generally been designed while using white, able-bodied male faces as the primary templates. So this has resulted in low accuracy rates for recognizing racial minorities. Other studies have shown similarly low levels of accuracy when examining those in the IDD community. Facial recognition has
2: also produced inaccurate results and resulted in negative outcomes for members of the LGBTQ community. These systems often don't accurately recognize queer, trans, or non-binary individuals, or the systems completely misgender them.
0: So what you're saying is that, in effect, we have to consider the ways that our unconscious biases may influence our design of these systems. This sounds essentially like another application of the design for all or accommodation by design scheme or paradigm that we've been discussing throughout this podcast. So to summarize for our listeners here, while smart cities offer ample opportunity for us to use technology to integrate the IDD community into broader society and to ensure that they're afforded the same rights as everyone else, we have to deliberately design and execute our technological implementation strategies with them in mind so that we avoid creating even more barriers to their inclusion. Ladies, this has given us a lot to think about. Thank you so, so much for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thanks for inviting us, Taylor. Thank you so much for hosting. Of course, and we will look forward to delving into other aspects of civil rights in the smart city context in our next podcast. I want to send a huge thank you out to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, where you can hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website all linked in the description of this episode. Finally, this podcast is made possible by a generous grant of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is funded by Cisco Systems, Inc. We truly appreciate their continued support of our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you stay safe and healthy. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI signing off.